Hey, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Impossible Trade-Offs. I'm Katie Harbath. We're doing things a little differently this week because I am actually on vacation. I am elk hunting with my brother and my dad in Southwest Colorado. And so no headlines or guest hosts today. We're going to get right into our main interview, which is with Funzile Van Dam, who is a fellow at Harvard and a longtime expert at the intersection of tech and human rights. And today we're going to be talking all things elections on the African continent. So please enjoy. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Impossible Trade-Offs. I'm very excited today to welcome Afumzile Van Dam, who I have... We haven't met in person yet, but I hope to sometime. But we have met through doing similar digital work. And I have her here to talk today about all things about the continent of Africa and elections. Welcome to Impossible Trade-Offs. Thank you for having me, Katie. I think we've had some conversations and... Yeah, I feel like I almost know you. So it'd be lovely to meet in person. I know. I want to keep, I want to keep getting to know you better because we had, we've been having such fascinating conversations. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited now we get to actually record one um, that we've been talking about. But let's start first with you sharing with listeners a little bit more about yourself and your background. Yeah. So I'm Pumzile Van Dam. I'm a South African, but I've been living in Norway for the last two years where it is getting incredibly cold. <laughs> Um, so the work that I do, so I used to be a member of parliament in South Africa until 2021. And part of the reason that I left had something to do with the work that I do now. And it was around, uh, would successfully, um, I pushed for the invitation of Facebook to parliament, but then my political party, the party I belong to basically said, you know, I need to lay off Facebook, leave them alone. Um, So I couldn't do that and I left. So the work that I've been doing since then has kind of started around South Africa, the country that I'm from. Um, The first kind of project that I ran was around this information um, in the country's 2021 election. So I ran ran a project monitoring that, combating um, and basically kind of conscientizing the public about disinformation. And since then, my interest has spread to the rest of the continent um, and, you know, the harms that disinformation does there and essentially pushing for better digital rights. So in a very short nutshell, that's what I do. Oh, yes, yes. And I'm currently a Harvard uh, human rights and technology fellow. That's amazing. And when you were saying that you wanted to bring Congress or Facebook into Congress, that was to question them about the work around disinformation and what they were doing or what was that specifically around? Yeah, so it was essentially ahead of the 2021 election. And what I wanted to do, and I think I made this clear throughout, is that I've noticed that the relationship the platforms have with legislators, with policymakers, is a very acrimonious one, one where there isn't open discussion around the issues that we as legislators or policymakers have and then hearing what the other side of the argument is. So I think it's a, I found it a very kind of combative relationship where there wasn't kind of collaboration and sitting around the table and saying, these are the problems we have, how do we resolve them? So that's the kind of conversation that I wanted to have. And I think for them, they kind of uh, also feared a situation where, you know, they'd be sitting on the other side of the table and we'd be wagging our fingers <laughs> and not talking to them. So, yeah, I think that's kind of the relationship. Even in my work now, I am trying to build with 
the people that, you know, I, the work that I do and kind of holding them accountable. So I really want to have those open conversations because I need to understand why is it that they aren't doing what civil society is saying, what activists are saying, what governments are saying. So I, that's the, that's the relationship that I wanted to build. That makes sense. And I want to dig into that. But let's zoom out really quickly for folks that might not be familiar with the continent. It's very large. It's very diverse. It has a lot of different countries, ways of doing elections. I'm wondering if you can kind of give folks a little bit of an overview of the continent and also the types, how elections work in many of these countries. Yeah, it's a very diverse continent. Firstly, just talking in terms of democracy. So there's different conceptions of what democracy is. So I'm from South Africa, you know, constitutional democracy, uh, a constitution that protects freedom of speech, of rights. So there's a robust democracy. And I think in other African countries, so Zimbabwe, which is a little bit north of South Africa, uh, you know, democracy isn't as strong as a, a value as in South Africa, um, where, you know, the election the election campaign, the way that it happens, there's a lot of targeting of opposition voices, arrests, disinformation campaigns. So I think it's a very diverse continent where there is strong democracies like South Africa, and then there's dictatorships where elections, even though there's elections take place on paper, there aren't really elections. Um, so, yeah, I think Maybe for your American audience, uh, there's always a joke of you know, Americans think Africa is a country, but it is a very big continent with lots of different languages, with a lot of diversity of people in terms of culture, um, you know, democracy, uh, human rights records. So it's it's a very diverse continent. Well, that's part of the reason I wanted to have you on and be trying to bring voices in from elsewhere around the world, because unfortunately, I do think some people think, you know, they forget that Africa is many countries and it's a continent and you can't necessarily take it as just one behemoth. And it tends to be, unfortunately, sometimes an area where many platforms are not paying attention and they are not prioritizing. You mentioned, so there typically tend to be political parties. Do people vote for party? Do they vote for a candidate? I know it kind of depends by country, but could you walk through that a little bit too, of just that structure? Yeah, it's very different. So the country I'm from, uh, South Africa, you vote for party. So in parliament or Congress, at the ballot, you'll vote for a specific political party. And then that political party will put together their candidates. So you don't vote for a person. Um, and then we have local elections, so municipalities, and there you will vote for a candidate. So the person that will represent you in your specific ward. Um, and in other countries, so I think that's something South Africa has been pushing for, for more direct representation. Um, because, you know, people will support a specific political party and they won't necessarily like the candidates. And in other countries, it's different um, where there is, but I think where, where there's voting of candidates. But I think if you had to kind of draw a golden thread through Africa, I think a lot of it has to do with big man politics um, where there's a specific political party 
and loyalty is often very a lot of historical loyalty to a specific political party where if you're an opposition party kind of trying to culturally break into those spaces of a dominant political party that kind of has a history of um kind of leading uh, the country out, out of colonialism or out of apartheid in South Africa, where there's a lot of kind of historical emotion um, around the political party or specific, you know, big man leader. So that almost creates a situation, I think, in a lot of African countries, which is different from the US, where it's kind of two states and, you know, it can swing in either direction or in a lot of European countries. So there's a lot of kind of one-party dominant countries, uh, dominant states. And I think it is in that space then if a party comes up and wants to challenge the dominance, the fight to stay dominant is big. You know, there's attacks, there's arrests, there's violations of human rights, elections are stolen. So I think that's an interesting perspective on Africa, where it's different from the States, where politics is a lot of it is linked to a history of colonialism or apartheid, of racial discrimination. Um, so I think, you know, that I'm not excusing that people don't necessarily vote out dictators or parties that have destroyed their countries, but that is just an interesting perspective on the dynamics of, of African politics. A lot of it is linked to that history. I was just looking at the map for next year for 2024. It looks like South Africa is going to go to elections. It looks like we, on my rough count, like 14 or 15 countries on the continent will be going to elections next year. Is that right? I think around the globe, it's kind of 2024 is an elections bonanza. Um, and I think a test for at least generative AI. I think that's kind of the new form of technology everyone's really, really worried about and testing out how it influences elections. So, yeah, I think for me, my big interest, obviously, is South Africa because that's where I'm from. Um, and even though I don't live there anymore, it's kind of center of my heart. Um, so, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. And I'm particularly interested in how the different platforms are going to respond to those threats. Well, let's dig into that into in terms of the threats that you see um, right now. You mentioned disinformation. You've mentioned generative AI. What are what are the things like? Give me a little bit of history of what you've seen happen in past elections, and sort of what are you keeping an eye on as we go into next year? Yeah, disinformation is obviously the biggest threat, and how it manipulates the public discourse, and how it is often used to spur violence. I think an interesting dimension of disinformation in Africa is a lot of foreign influence. Uh, so it's a terrain for a battle of kind of Russia, China, Saudi Arabia versus the West. So a lot of those battles play out on the African continent where there's a lot of Russian-sponsored campaigns um, in the Central African Republic. Um, there's a lot of kind of Russian disinformation where it's not only kind of 
funding influences where you can see that this is a very kind of pro-Russia influencer which has a large following and they're able to kind of influence people in in their position. It's mercenaries. Um, So it's a campaign where it takes place online, where there's manipulation of public discourse online, where it is terror in real life, where Wagner troops will uh, be used to terrorize opposition parties, to terrorize journalists. Um, so the way that they portray, take the interests, uh, disinformation and what happens online is very much linked to pr- protecting the interests in those, in those African countries. Russia does it that way. China does it by um, funding academics to write studies or they'll fund election missions, you know, election monitoring missions. But in essence, they are there to kind of spot off the ruling party's uh, narratives. They buy a lot of media houses. So there's a lot of Chinese-owned outlets. In South Africa, there is a publication called IOL, uh, on uh, independent news. So this is a media house that has uh, newspapers in all the different provinces in South Africa. It has a huge footprint. So the dimension of what happens online translates into traditional media. So it's a massive multifaceted campaign which happens in the air, online digital media, traditional newspapers, which often translates into radio and TV, where in countries where there aren't uh, strong institutional democrat- democratic organizations, there's terror on the ground. So for me, I'm really worried about what it means for the people in those countries where they can't properly express themselves. Um, so, I mean, there's a threat of the fact that, you know, people are targeted um, you know, democ- uh, opposition voices are shut down. Journalists are shut down. For me, the, it's a fact that disinformation, even if they do have that right and they can go express their opinion at the ballot, they can't because they've been manipulated by with with um, false information. So for me, it's just I really want the people of my continent to be able to express themselves where they do have the vote, be able to go to the ballot and vote out a party that's not delivering, that is corrupt, that is not delivering services. So elections are a great way to bring in better governments. But I I find that disinformation really is a deterrent to this. One of the things I've been watching, and I'm curious if you agree with this sentiment, is, you know, there's a lot of worry that the U.S. election and EU elections and other ones will suck a lot of the attention by the platforms and others, which to me means that leaves an even bigger opening for Russia and China to be targeting continents like Africa and South America, where they've been having a very long and steady campaign to try to get the countries on those continents to fall more in line with how Russia and China want to run things because there's a lot of resources on that continent too that are really necessary to the advancement of technology. It's not just the stuff online and what's happening. There's actual minerals and and other things that that they need. So I think this is something that I feel like my voice is hoarse from from shouting. 
uh, Africa, pay attention to Africa. A lot of the discussions center around what's happening in the US, what's happening in the EU. And I think the benefit that the citizens of those countries have is one, legislators that understand that this is a threat. You know, the EU for me is kind of the shining beacon and platform accountability. Um, I think with Elon Musk, I guess he's the current arch evil of of big tech uh, social media. Um, So with the Israeli-Palestinian disinformation around that conflict, I mean, the EU said, we give you 24 hours, and he acted. So the African Union is kind of finally discussing social media and kind of looking around guidelines on how social media should be used or regulated around elections. They invited all the platforms. All of them came, and Elon Musk's people didn't come. I think that just shows the attitude that, that we feel a lot of um, one the platforms have towards Africa, where it is complete disregard. I think at the beginning of 2023, the biggest war in, in the world was in Ethiopia, where a lot of it, a lot of ethnic violence was fanned on social media platforms. And it feels like the attention is not given to Africa. Um a lot of terrible things happen, um, and, and I'd really like to steer the conversation for activists, for civil society, to start talking about what's happening on the continent. Um, you know, I don't want to say you know, we can't fight it alone, but I think all those voices that talk about this work, we need to talk about what's happening in Africa. I think the global south kind of monopolizes the conversation and where you know there's conspiracy theories that kind of damage the public discourse i think what's different for africa is often what is said online translates into real life violence where in ethiopia where disinformation targeting a specific ethnic group actually results in offline violence it's incredibly frustrating you know there's Obviously, a whole multitude of things need to happen. The leaders, the legislators, the policymakers in those countries need to be talking about platform accountability. They need to be talking, you know, have the right laws in place, but they don't. I think, and also there isn't a critical mass of people in Africa calling for this kind of thing to happen. Um, I think because people live in such abject poverty that what's happening online just seems like, you know, this big a problem that. They shouldn't care about, you know, for them. It's what is this disinformation thing? You know, I don't have anything to eat tonight. The electricity is not on. I don't have running water. And and I think for those of us who recognize just how dangerous it is, how it is essentially being used to keep people that are responsible for the the terrible conditions they lies in, Eliza in. So I would like to have those voices that speak very loudly um, and can bring about change, you know, who will expose what's happening in Germany and the far right and what they're saying and they're online. I just, we need that same attention to be given to what's on the continent. And another thing I know that people face too, that I think a lot of people may not 
realize is internet shutdowns. Like internet some countries shutdown. do shut down the internet, especially yeah. during election period. Absolutely. Nigeria, you know, it can go from a complete and utter internet shutdown as a Swaziland, small country just to the east of, of Africa. So they I don't know if you can even call it a democracy. They have elections where it's not. It's the last absolute monarchy in in the country. So there's when there's pro-democracy protests, they will shut the internet down. And what that does, it's not even about, um, so it's obviously communication internally, but what it does is that international, the international community, journalists, they can't get that kind of information and then they can't report um, so I understand how that actually um, means that people, you know, the international community doesn't have enough to talk about. Uh, they don't have the information, you know, to to talk about what's happening in those countries. So it can happen to be in a complete extreme like that, or in Nigeria, um, Twitter was shut down. I think it was in the twenty twenty one election um, because I think Jack Dorsey had expressed support to protests that were happening in the country. So they shut it down. Um, And yeah, this happens regularly. There aren't any real accountability mechanisms. But what I think for uh, the way to understand Africa also is different regions. So South Africa is part of SADC, um, South Africa, Botswana, Kenya. They're part of that community. And a lot of the accountability that happens for different countries happens at that level. So SADC, you know, the leaders can pretty much do what they want. Uh, in East and West Africa, there's ECOWAS, so it's the East and West Africa community, where the decision of Nigeria to shut down Twitter was heard in the court of this regional body. And they made a ruling and said, you know, this was a violation of rights. So I don't know, it's, it seems like such a huge problem but it really requires a whole of society response so it requires the people of Africa to start seeing um, this as a problem and start talking about it uh, demanding that of leaders of policymakers of legislators it requires um, I think the right laws to be in place those laws aren't in place um, it requires the social media platforms to take Africa far more seriously. They know they can get a lot away with a lot because who is there to hold them accountable? And particularly, I think of grave importance is the international community to start talking about these things, to use the measures that are in place. Um, you know, I think an internet shutdown is such a gross violation of the rights of people in a specific country that it should be spoken about at UN level. It should be spoken about. Yeah, it just seems like such a tall mountain to climb. But I, I am confident that it can be resolved. Like I, I wouldn't be able to do what I do without a certain amount of hope. Like I think it's achievable. But you just need more people kind of talking about it and highlighting what's going wrong. Um, and, I, and I, I don't think it's only just social media platforms. It's technology companies as a whole. So a lot of kind of surveillance AI, I think MIT did the study, surveillance AI is tested out in African countries. Um, it's tested out in South Africa where it's been found to be causing a form of digital apartheid. Um, so obviously there's the bias around race in, in AI, in surveillance AI, but a lot of 
these technologies are tested out in Africa and they know they can get away with it. Um, and we will need to be talking a little bit more what's happening on the continent. Well, that's what we're trying to do right now as well. Um, Well, and tell me, I want to get into your work, but first, what platforms are used the most by folks on the the continent? Is it still Facebook? Is it TikTok? Is it WhatsApp? What what are you seeing used the most? It's different for different countries. And also there's different internet penetration rates. So there's countries like Mauritius, uh, Seychelles, South Africa, where the internet penetration rate is in the 70s and 80s. Um, In countries like Central African Republic and others where it's around uh, 20%. Um, So what I could say is a platform that is used widely is WhatsApp. Um, So it's the number one method of communication. So pretty much everyone uses WhatsApp. And what the mobile service providers will often do is they will include social platforms as part of a bundle. Um, So it's WhatsApp for communication. It's uh, Facebook. And it's different for different countries. But I think Facebook is a platform that's utilized a lot. Instagram, TikTok is is breaking through. And what about YouTube for video? YouTube? Yes, yes, absolutely. YouTube is used a lot. Um, so it's different for different countries. Um, yeah. But I think what's been the same is just a lack of a big problem. I think even if the platforms have content moderation, it will be in English or French for Francophone Africa, where the people who craft this information or, you know, incite violence can just do it in native languages and it will be completely missed. So if... What I would like to see is those platforms, including those languages. Um, and there's hundreds of languages, right, across the continent yeah, that people might speak. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I think Nigeria has something like 90 different languages. Uh, Ghana was going to election. Um, they have hundreds of languages. Um, even though on those platforms, the main mode of communication is English, because in those countries where there are different ethnic groups and different languages, there's often a language that everyone speaks and can understand. So in Anglophone Africa, everyone understands English. And Francophone Africa, everyone understands French. But there are often language groups that also are quite dominant and I mean, I, I always talk about South Africa because that's the country I know and the one I'm from. South Africa has nine official languages. But I'm not saying that in countries where there's hundreds of languages are spoken, that content moderation needs to happen every single one of those languages. For me, it's if you're going to look at a country, you know, look at data. English is spoken, French is spoken, and then there's also other dominant languages in all those language groups. Um, I think it would be a sign of goodwill um, that other languages are included. And another another marked difference from how the, the, the platforms deal with Africa, you'll often find ahead of the U.S. election, you know, they will announce we are preparing for the U.S. election. You can visit the safety center and find all this information. We have a very country-specific project that focuses on this election. You know, they did it. They do it for elections in the 
in the EU and European countries. They do it for the US, but they don't do it for African countries. I know we've done it for Kenya, or when at least when I was at Facebook. I think I've seen mm. some around Kenya. I can't remember. I've got a whole database that I should actually mm. look at. But you're right. Like it's not it's not done for in the same way for all of the countries going to to election in on the continent. And I think the difference, so that's another difference in in African countries. So Kenya for me is a very tech literate country. um, And because they're so tech literate, I think the population is far more aware of the online space and, you know, digital rights um, and I think because the people there are more aware of that, the global community pays more attention. Um, so I think it's a bit of an outlier. Um, and it's good to see that that happen in Kenya, but it needs to happen in, in other countries. And particularly in those countries where it could re- result, it results in offline violence. Um, you know, I remember I was talking a lot about the Zimbabwean election. So I was going to prepare a project around that. And the feedback I got from a lot of grant makers was that, you know, Zimbabwe doesn't have a very strong democracy. Um, Sort of like a pointlessness in that, you know, what's the point? You know, these people, it's not a very democratic country. We can invest in this a civil society project to look at an election, to look at election disinformation, to look at violations of digital rights. And I think that people see a sense of futility in, in, in African countries and doing this work that I'm saying, okay, fine, if you see a futility in this, in situations where what is said online results in offline violence, surely that should spur you to invest a little bit more in this work. Um, There's a lot of civil society organizations that are looking at the online space. And I've spoken to a number of them and just money is a problem for them. You know, they can't afford access to APIs. That's completely inaccessible. So even if there's civil society bodies in in, in that field, you know, they don't have the data. Um, they can't do that work to expose what's happening online and be able to, to have those conversations. I don't know what Facebook's done recently, but it's, it seems to be crowd tangle doesn't seem to exist anymore. So even if the assistance is to say, you know, we can't come into your country and do this work, but here is support so you can access uh, Twitter's API so that you can, you know, expose what's happening. So it's a multitude of of challenges. But I guess I'm just trying to yeah. make it easier for people to assist. Um, so if it's not just speaking out and kind of amplifying work that's been done by civil society bodies, help the, the help those organizations. If it's helping get access to data if it's training people that are doing this work uh, training them in open source investigations so that a lot of the exposure happens here and then it's spread into the it's ex- exposed in the in the international community yeah um and do you have hope that like what's happening in Europe and with the digital services act and stuff like that like how are you watching what's happening in Europe and do you think it may have a trickle down effect into other places such as Africa yeah. so yeah i really wished 
wish African legislators would start talking about the online space. Kenya, once again, is the African leader in that space. But what I always know is that what happens in the EU and if the platforms uh, or tech companies have to change their practices is that they won't only restrict it to the EU. It will, they will, in most instances, will change it to affect um, how those platforms do business in other African countries, in other countries, not just Africa, around the world. I think everyone should look at what the EU is doing right. I think the US needs to look at what the EU is doing right. Um, I think a lot of tech companies, you know, in the same way that they know they can get away with certain things in the global, in global South countries, the same is for the US. Um, I, I really, I don't know, I think I'm the biggest fangirl of the <laughs> EU and what they do around platform accountability. Everyone has so much to learn from what the EU is doing right and where they do stumble. At least we have a test, test case. Yeah. Say, you know, they tried this out. Here's where they've gone wrong. But at least I think it really shows what is possible that even though these are multi-billion companies, you know, Goliaths, but I think the way that they talk to the EU and the way that they respond to the EU. This most recent example with Elon Musk, who just doesn't seem to care what anyone says, but he knows that the EU will act. If they say we're giving you 24 hours, they mean 24 hours. Otherwise, you will get a fine in the billions of dollars. So I'd really like our leaders the leaders of different countries to really see what is possible and do more to protect their citizens. And let's dig into your civil society work here with the, the last couple of minutes and stuff that we have. And you've mentioned, you know, that at the beginning about sort of the disconnect between what civil society and governments mm -hmm. are asking for and what the platforms are doing. I'm wondering if you can dig into that a little bit more about the types of things you're you're looking at and, you know, what the, the podcast is called Impossible Trade-Offs. And there's trade-offs that go into this. So I'm curious what you've been learning as you've been talking to to, to folks and like, yeah, just tell us a bit more about that, about that work. So a big project I'm working on at the moment is I'm working with USAID around talking around values and ethics for the digital development projects. And we've been speaking to a lot of civil society and academia, and we thought it's, as part of the project, also important to speak to the technology companies. I have been working on a project looking at infusing ethics and values in digital development. And I've been having conversations with a lot of uh, academia, civil society. But I thought it also important to speak to technology companies because I think, look, once again, to go back to what I said in the beginning, um, we're good at finding problems um, and just saying, here's a wish list. We want you to go do all of these things, but we need to understand what it is they can do, why it is that they can't do what they're doing. Yeah, I think you can't talk about, take accountability. You can't talk about reform of technology you can't talk about the design of technology to infuse ethics without understanding why they can't do that 
having them around the table. I think my background in politics has helped me in this and understanding that if you want to bring about change, you need to have those people around the table. You need to negotiate. It will take a measure of pragmatism and, you know, from, from being an opposition politician and being in those spaces where I'm a lone voice around a whole room of people who are sent there to say a specific thing where they're not sent, not told don't budge. But I think they're both sides of the, of the fence need to understand that you need each other. You know, the tech companies don't want the bad PR that comes from civil society. Civil society don't want what what the platforms are doing. So I think it's just about getting around the table. You know, if you're, there's talk, I mean, what I think there needs to happen, there needs to be some sort of code of conduct at a global level for social media platforms. But you can't do that unless you have them around the table. So that acrimonious relationship where there's grave mistrust on both sides, I think it's counterproductive. And, you know, I think both sides think it's monsters on the other side. And you need to understand it's actually people you can talk to. And they are more often than not, you know, completely normal people. And you'll find that they're open to reason. Well, that's what I liked about our conversation um, in kind of talking about that, right? Is that reasonable people can be like, you, you need that back and forth of sort of being like, well, we would like you to do it this way. And then on the platform side being like, okay, well then these are the trade-offs yeah. or these are the challenges we have. And like have that back and forth negotiation about what is possible, how you prioritize it. But if the platforms don't even, if nobody comes to the table or to your point, they come to the table, but it's a very tense, acrimonious yeah. relationship. It's hard to have those conversations. Exactly. I don't see this conversation probably shouldn't be happening because you used to work at Facebook. You are evil. <laughs> you are a monster. You have horns. I should never have a conversation with you. But I think from you, and I've spoken to other people, spoken to people from Google, people who are still at Facebook. And I think I've learned so much from those conversations. And I think any ideas that I have around what I think needs to be happening, those conversations are the ones that have actually brought about change. It almost feels a little bit childish, to be honest. I'll probably, some of my street cred will be gone because I'm even talking to you. <laughs> but I, I really wish people would, this is probably controversial, grow up um, and understand that you need to have these conversations. You can't just, you know, be standing on the sideline with your placards and finding out where all the problems are. You need to understand the technology in companies and understand when an ask is too much, where you can't have content moderation in a country in 100 languages because it's not possible. You can't have content moderators in all those languages. There is some trade-offs. I think it's that's a trade-off, right? Content moderation. Yeah. I would love that in African countries there's content moderation in every single country. But my trade-off, a trade-off that I'm willing to make is to say, that's not possible. So let's look. Let's talk. I know this country. I know which languages are spoken. I have uh, seen the data around disinformation or incitement of violence in a specific country. So I think, uh, Mr. Facebook, Mr. Twitter, these are the languages that you need to have content moderation on. Um, and even information sharing, right, around elections, 
um, the platforms often have a lot of information at their disposal that uh, civil society can't get. And if you have the conversation with the platforms and say, hey, can you share your the data that you get? Um, that's another way of assisting, right, in a situation where it's a matter of affordability and money. And we say, hey, Mr. TikTok, can you share this data around what's happening? Or it's a situation to say, hey, Mr. Instagram, I have noticed this piece of content, which because of contextual reasons, you might not understand. And your content moderation would have said, this is not a danger. But hey, this is me. I've spoken to you before. This is actually dangerous. Could you do something about this piece of content? Content. Last question is a lot of my listeners as well are folks that either currently work at platforms, used to work on platforms. A lot of them are on newer platforms. They're, they're just trying to build this stuff up. What's your message to, what's your message to them? Where, where would you tell them to to start yeah what, what's what's that mantra move fast and break things move slower and don't break things <laughs> um, you know what I, I would like to say is that if you are going to do that um impact assessment or human rights assessment do it at design stage infuse values test what the possible implications are to human well-being so i'm not talking about legality and say you know does this technology meet the dsa does it how will the gdpr respond to this technology i'd like to say consider human well-being consider what it does to teens instagram consider how it has racial bias. It might infuse racial bias. So I would say if you change what you're doing, have those conversations right at the beginning. Don't do it at the end because then it's too late. So if I would share a message is to say, include the considerations on human well-being beyond regulatory considerations. Consider what it does to social relations Consider what it does to racial discrimination. Consider what it does to teenagers. Consider, you know, eating disorders and what that does. I've seen that there's been a far greater conversation from at least some of the people that I I, uh, communicate with, that there's far greater considerations around those topics. And I think those that just think, oh, you know, it's all about just getting as much profit as you can and Whatever happens to humans, what happens? I'd like to see human well-being being something that is given far more dominance in a design stage, not too late when the damage has already <laughs> happened. Well, Fumzele, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a fantastic conversation. Um, I'll put links to a lot of your work and stuff in the show notes, but thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And I really enjoy all our conversations. I really enjoyed today's. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Impossible Trade-Offs. You can find the show notes and everything for this podcast on my Substack at anchorchange.substack.com. I want to thank all of my guests for doing this. And this episode was edited by Claude Jennings Jr. I hope you all have a great day and thank you so much.